Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. As you go into a commoditized industry, leading with the mission is more important. If you're not in a commoditized industry, then your product has major differences against its competition. And so it makes sense for you to lead with more of your product and how it is and why is it better than a competition. And although we have differences from our competition, it is a more commoditized product, right? If you go to a grocery store right now, you're gonna find Pillsbury, Nestle, and other big brands right there. And so leading with the mission in this case, I think is more relevant. By now, we've all heard about the thousands of businesses that pivoted to e-commerce in the wake of the pandemic last year. But so far on the show, I don't think I've talked with someone who was strictly retail, who had to quickly pivot to e-commerce, and now may not even be thinking about going back to retail at all. I was excited to dive into what this looked like behind the scenes and brought Israel, aka Is Mariah, on the show, the co-CEO of Dope, a company that sells edible and delicious cookie dough. Prior to 2020, Dope relied heavily on its brick and mortar stores, I think 100%, but is saw potential in expanding the company through e-commerce channels, and luckily laid the groundwork for the infrastructure for that pivot even before COVID-19 forced Dope to shut down its retail locations. With a now fully online company, Dope has started to centralize and increase its shipping capabilities and has seen success, but it wasn't a cake, or should I say cookie dough walk. Yeah, I'm funny and cheesy. Is explains some of the hardships Dope faced on its journey to e-commerce success, including how little information sharing there still is in the business world when it comes to cold shipping. Plus, he dives into the recent revelations he's discovered about whether free shipping actually matters as much as you think. Plus, do you think Dope plans on ever returning to retail or are they staying strictly e-commerce? Find out all that and more on this episode with Is. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce, your number one spot for all things e-commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today, I'm chatting with Israel Morea, aka Iz. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Stephanie. Nice to be here. I'm really excited to have you on here. And I'm excited to have a company on here called Dope, which I've said now the name multiple <laughs> times. I'm like, why was I not innovative enough to create a company called Dope? So, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I have to give full credit to Kelsey, though. She she was the marketing brain behind this brand. So it's really interesting. And coming from Brazil, dope was not part of my English skill. So when I first heard it, I was like, wait, what, what is this? What is that? And then it makes sense. That's, yeah. So maybe let's start there before we dive into what dope is and, you know, your role there. Tell me a bit about coming from Brazil. When did you come over to the U.S.? And 
why and what was that process like? Yeah, for sure. So I have a civil engineering background. Um, I went to school for civil engineering, started working in construction um, in about 2010 or 2011, uh, some time ago, and eventually became a project manager for a construction firm in Brazil. I loved working in construction per se because of all the changes and all the new stuff going on around. And being a project manager is really relevant in any industry, right? You can just transfer that skill set across multiple industries. And so I love doing that. But living in Brazil was not something that fulfilled me, per se. I would say safety in Brazil, public education, public health, everything you hear in the news here about third world countries, mm-hmm. most of it is true. And so being raised there, my parents always told me like, oh, if you ever have an opportunity to leave and study abroad, like just go do it. All the other countries out there, they're way better for you to have a better career. And so I kind of had that mindset built into me in my upbringing. And so in 2015, I decided to make the change. I did a backpacking trip to the United States and Canada because I wanted to be in an English speaking country. English was always my second language. And so I was like, well, I got to go during the winter and find out if I can withstand the the winter in the place that I'm going. Because the summer is fine, right? I was born and raised under the sun. Mm -hmm. So I did this backpacking trip. Um, of 30 days going across the US and Canada, which was awesome. But it it led me to find out that I wanted to be in Berkeley in California. And so I applied to um, a course there, an international student course that gave me um, the ability to stay here studying business management and marketing, which were not my strong suits. I was always a project manager. So I wanted to know how to manage a business and marketing, the marketing side because I'm so focused on operations and finances was, was never my strong suit. So I wanted to um, be a little better in that regard. And then after studying here, I was able to secure a job in San Francisco, which was like, my, my head was just blown away by that. And uh, yeah, eventually just stayed here uh, working in SF. And, and then the love story begins between me and Kelsey. But after working for Product School, which was the company I was working for in SF, um, I joined Kelsey at Dope. Yep. So Kelsey founded Dope, which is a raw cookie dough bar, but not raw. It doesn't have raw eggs in there, right? Is that the right way to explain it? Or maybe you can do it better justice. (laughs) No, that's correct. I like it. Uh, It does not have any raw eggs and we use heat treated flour. And so it's super safe for consumption. Um, so the, the whole idea of this is to bring nostalgia by the scoop. And so you just probably grew up here trying to eat the cookie dough that your mom or somebody in your family was uh, baking. And everybody was saying like, no, you can't eat it because the eggs and you're going to get salmonella and whatever. Yep. And so Kelsey did found uh, dope in 2017 to solve that problem. And it's an interesting story as well, because in 2015, she became sober. Um, She was struggling with alcohol, working for Intel for 10 years. In becoming sober, she rediscovered her passion for baking. She just launched Dope in 2017. Uh, In 2018, she started the Pier 39 store that she used to have in San Francisco. Um, And it was a rocket ship, I got to say. She then launched in Oracle Park and a kiosk and then in 2019, Dope opened the store at the Las Vegas Strip. And so in 2019, Dope had three basic brick and mortar operating stores. That's awesome. And so everything was brick and mortar at that point. When did you enter in to the company? What year was it? And what does your role look like as co-CEO versus what Kelsey works on? Right. Um, 
So let me start with the second question, the co-CEO role. Kelsey and I have very different skill sets. She is a marketing guru and a business development wizard, I gotta say. She's great at that. And I'm great in operations and finances. And so we have very defined responsibilities, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so whenever she comes with a problem, obviously I'll be the sounding board, but she's the one that's the expert in marketing, for example. So if there's anything coming up in a marketing campaign, then she's the one who's going to say, go or no go, the, the final word and vice versa in operations and finances. And so it's a really fortunate situation, I got to say, because it makes it easier, right? Especially having a relationship as well. Right now I'm speaking from the office and we try to keep all dope matters in the office. So the relationship also happens, but it's a, it's a challenge. But anyway, I think we have a very fortunate situation in, in this skill set. Um, as far as your first question, where in when did we transition into the e-commerce and when did I join the company? Yeah. Yeah. And when did you join the company? Cause that's where I want to get into right. the path to like Shark Tank and all that. So what year was it that you joined? <laughs> right. She went to Shark Tank before I joined the company. So okay. she went to Shark Tank in 2019. So right after she opened the store uh, here in Las Vegas, she went to Shark Tank um, and I joined the company late 2019. So it was about six months after the Shark Tank episode aired. So you were in the midst of the growth then because she was, I was listening to an interview with some stats around, I think it was in November, 2019, you guys were maybe shipping like 30 boxes a month. And then by April, 2020, you were shipping like 3000 boxes per week, <laughs> which is crazy growth. So I want to kind of hear, I mean, it sounds like you were right in the midst of that, of entering into like, she was on Shark Tank, she didn't get a deal, but then she started opening more retail locations, grew like crazy. And then COVID hit. Like, tell me a bit about that. Exactly that. So you just summarized everything. I joined the company in November of 2019, which was exactly when we were doing the small amount of boxes a month. And when I joined, one of the first things I did with her was to have a big brainstorming session about all the operations that she was doing, right? So at the time she was doing catering events and she was doing a little bit of wholesale, a little bit of e-commerce, and she also had the stores. Um, so it was a very wide breadth of operations and not having a lot of success in any of them per se, right? So the stores were still the, the bread and butter of the company. None of the stores were growing astronomically, and we were already seeing some foot traffic decreases happening so much so that as soon as we, I joined the company, I was like, we got to make sure that the unit economics of these stores are a little better, right? Mm -hmm. So we were paying way more in rent than we should be paying based on foot traffic. And so renegotiations started happening back then. So out of that brainstorming session, we used a, a very rudimentary framework, I would say, but it was super helpful to understand what type of work was being done in each distribution channel to serve customers versus what type of return that was giving to the company. And so the outcome of that situation was, okay, brick and mortar is still the bread and butter of the company. We are not going to change that, but we need to find one other channel, not five, six, seven, whatever she was doing back then, that will be the 20% revenue, right? We're going to keep bread, uh, the brick and mortar 80%, and we're going to have one of these as 20%. And e-commerce was the one we decided just because of the quote unquote infinite uh, possibilities of having the foot traffic not being limited by foot, right? It's not, it's not actually foot traffic. It's actually eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to go into e-commerce in November of 2019 together. 
that's when we started shifting all of our resources into growing our website and our paid acquisition channels and our social media strategy. And when the pandemic hit, thankfully, we were ready. So although it was awful for the brick and mortar stores, it was great for the e-commerce because people were at home. They were not very happy being at home. And they were trying to find novelties to kind of fill the time, right? They were just not happy at home. And being an impulse buy, a nostalgia buy, we just skyrocketed. And that's why 3,000 boxes a week happened. Mm -hmm. What kind of things did you have to adjust on the back end when it came to logistics? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, shipping perishables. It's one thing to ship it to a retail location. You've got it all set. You're planning for, you know, your orders that are like on average every week. How do you prepare for, you know, shipping all over the country or world? Like, how did you set things up to prepare for that? That was a big learning experience. I got to say that there's a lot that co-chain shipping entails. And in back in 2019, we knew almost nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of talking to people that are already in the space and flying and driving to fulfillment centers and co-packers and seeing how they work, really kind of learning how they work. But at the same time, we didn't have all the resources to go into a co-packer and a national last mile distribution contract. And so we had to be scrappy as well. And so we had to use all the resources that we had. And in March, when the pandemic hit, I had staff of the store and I had the space and I had no customers to serve. So that helped us in that I started using those resources to fulfill the e-commerce orders, right? So January, February, we were already having some growth, not astronomical, but still some growth. And I was already using that labor to fulfill the orders. And then in March, when the pandemic hit and e-commerce just went through the roof, I was able to use our staff to to help there. Um, But as far as the logistical implications, we have a lot of limitations because of code shipping, but now I thankfully can say we know what we're doing. That's a plus. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When we first started finding coolants and insulation uh, that will be able to keep your product refrigerated through the, cha- um, through the time in transit and also making sure that you find that sweet spot between the winter and the summer, right? Because the summer will need more coolants, but you also can't forget about the coolants in the winter. It was a big challenge, but now we got it dialed in. I mean, it seems like this area of cold chain shipping and logistics has a lot of room to grow because we've had a couple people on the show who, you know, we had Yasso on, who's like frozen yogurt bars. And everyone talks about building their packing materials kind of from scratch, depending on what you need, which seems insane to me. It seems like there should be some kind of shipping material that says, if you need something under this, you know, temperature for like five days, here's the box to go with. Why do you think this industry is lagging behind like that when it seems like this is the way forward? I mean, everyone's going to be doing grocery delivery and online orders much more frequently now, like it's the way we're moving, but it seems like that area is definitely lagged behind. That's a great question. Um, I do think there's wide or a vast lack of information around there. There's a little amount of players that know a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So if you talk to um, some specialist companies in packaging and box design and coolant design, then yeah, they will know everything, but it's proprietary information because it's their product. So they don't want to be sharing this with many people. And so you don't find a lot of that information online consolidated in, in like a how-to book. And mm-hmm. that's the first problem. And, and the second problem is we had grocery stores 
operating before all this happened. And now, obviously, that trend of going into e-commerce was already happening. But when the pandemic hit, it just accelerated exponentially. And so the, the speed with which the information is shared was not equal to the speed with which people needed that information. And so we have this major gap right now in which some players know what they're doing and some players are still trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it also seems like as kind of like a middle ground, if you don't have the resources to invest in your own shipping materials, you could kind of do the middle ground of like working with grocery stores and letting them like take care of it, like ship it to the grocery store. They can do the online orders, the, you know, in-store pickups and all that kind of stuff. And you don't have to figure out the logistics from like end to end in the beginning. Right, right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think that's why most brands did not adventure into the e-commerce space. I mm-hmm. think now we're just seeing so many brands going into e-commerce because people are at home and they're not buying from grocery stores as often which is a whole different conversation, right? Like, are they ever going to go back to whatever normal is or are they going to continue buying from e-commerce? And my take on that is that they will continue to buy from e-commerce, not as much as now, but definitely they're not going back to what that rate was before. And so, yeah. And and so having this um, central player is also another reason why the information was centralized, right? They, they have this competitive edge and they don't want to give it away to their competitors. So if you're talking about a Whole Foods, they have their own distribution uh, chain. So they have their own ways to make their profit at the, end of the, at the end of the day. And so they don't want other competitors to find out what they're doing, I bet. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. So when you were going through these transitions of going from like retail, mostly retail to e-commerce, what were some of the areas of the business that needed the most adjustments where, you know, when you're focused on retail, you're thinking about the foot traffic and what neighbors do you have moving in? Like what other stores are nearby? You're mentioning unit economics. It seems very different, different when you're shifting almost completely to online sales. What things did you have to adjust or completely cut out from the business? And like the whole way of thinking, what do you have to change? Well, the unit economics of the two channels are very different, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about a brick and mortar store, you have to consider labor as one of your biggest costs, along with ingredients and packaging. Um, And then as you go into e-commerce, ingredients and packaging are are still there. They're not going to go away. So the major difference is shipping, handling and shipping. Mm -hmm. So these are the major differences. Um, Some people consider shipping within the cost of goods sold universe. Some people say it's out, but then after shipping, it's a contribution margin. Whatever you may say, shipping is a major cost to serve your customers on the e-commerce channel. So that is the biggest change. I think we've seen ingredients and packaging as we're we're selling the same product do not change. Mm -hmm. Um, Operating expenses and SG&A will have a whole different conversation as well, because as you go into e-commerce, you're acquiring customers in a very different way, as as you mentioned. Uh, you're not dependent on foot traffic. You're not dependent on a, a shopping mall management. What happens with the world? Flights, especially in the Las Vegas Strip, it's a very tourist-based area. And so going away from that gives us a lot more independence. But at the same time, because everybody got into that space last year, it got very competitive. Mm-hmm. And so although the cost structure is different, the competition makes it hard. Did you have a customer base that you could tap into from your retail locations where it's like, you've got these loyal customers coming back. Maybe they're getting points. Did you already have that baseline to tap into and be like, and we're moving to retail. We'll see you there. Or did you kind of have to start from scratch? 
So it's a 50-50 response here. Yes, we did. And it was great, right? We had a lot of customers that went through uh, the Pier 39 store and the Las Vegas trip store. And they were indeed activated for the e-commerce. Whenever we were like ready to ship, we, we sent a blast saying, hey guys, here we are. We can ship to your house now. And this was January uh, pre-pandemic. So that part was great. But at the same time, we just grew so much in March and April that I would say most of our customers right now did not go through our stores before. So although we did tap into that, that's not the majority of our customer base. Yep. So then how are you thinking about customer acquisition now? Because once again, that seems like such a different hat you have to wear of like how to attract customers in the online world versus I could do a billboard. I could like go out and give out samples of, you know, the cookie dough. Like how, what are your top performing channels right now that you guys are leaning into? Uh, so our top performing channels are paid advertising and social media organic. Mm -hmm. I think we have a very different scenario here than most brands that you see in the grocery stores. And it's because we lead with our mission and are giving back, right? We have a mission. We talk about mental health and stigmas about around mental health. And we also give 1% back to the community. And that's just not something that other brands out there do. So if you associate that with a kick-ass product, which is what we have, then you have a winning formula. I think this is the way that we lead with our brand messaging. And this is what's made us so successful so far. How do you think about balancing that? Because we've had a couple brands on the show who also have missions. Um, we've had Bombas on, we had Black and Bold Coffee, but they also talk about the unique balance between thinking like, how do you, do you sell with the mission or do you sell with the product and then you know showcase the mission afterwards? Because it kind of depends on who you're getting in front of or who you're trying to reach. How do you guys think about that balance of like, we have an epic product and we have a great mission without, you know, muddying up the website? That's a very interesting question. And I think you said the answer in the question. I, think... I just answer my own questions, you know, just like my style. <laughs> um, I actually agree with your answer. I think it depends on who you're trying to sell and it depends on what your product is. I think there's many ways for you to do this. And in our particular case, uh, we try to lead with the mission. And I think as, as you go into a commoditized industry, leading with the mission is more important. Mm -hmm. If you're not in a commoditized industry, then your product has major differences against its competition. And so it makes sense for you to lead with more of your product and how it is and why is it better than a competition. And although we have differences from our competition, it is a more commoditized product, right? If you go to a grocery store right now, you're going to find Pillsbury, Nestle, and, and other big brands right there. And so leading with the mission in this case, I think is more relevant. I, I like that point. That is yeah, a good way to think about it. Like depending on the industry, you should think about how to reach your customers. I also think you could maybe segment the customers depending on what they're searching for, what they're interested in, if they're past customers. We've talked a lot about loyalty on the show and how you should be giving different messages depending on who the customer is and how they've engaged with your product. Do you guys think about, you know, doing a more personalized approach depending on how your customers are interacting? Yeah. And that also talks very closely to our landing page strategy, right? We have different offerings for different customers. And so it makes sense for you to segment your customer base and say, okay, I got to potentially have a loss leader to have this customer in the door. And then I'll make sure that this customer loves the product enough that they will come back because of the mission. So that's one potential strategy. But again, it depends on what customer you're trying to sell to and what your product is. 
in our case, we have many different customer personas and we try many different approaches to each of them every single day. So there's a lot that goes into A-B testing and understanding what performs better to each audience. Um, and so that, that's a lot of our time. Yeah. What are some of your favorite experiments that you've run or results where you're like, I wasn't expecting that, but now we're kind of leaning into that strategy after, you know, deploying that. Any good stories around that? Um, yeah. Shipping. Shipping is... Let's hear <laughs> it. Shipping is very interesting. Yeah. Um, we've run many, many tests around shipping and it seems to be like a seasonal thing or it has something to do with the pandemic. We're not quite sure about the reasoning behind it. But it seems like in the very beginning of the pandemic, people were more sensitive to the free shipping messaging, right? Mm -hmm. you, were, you were testing free shipping against a 295 shipping. Free shipping would convert like crazy versus the 295. Whereas now, it seems like people are more understanding of the world situation and how shipping works and how expensive it is for brands to ship. And so right now, the latest test that we run, that we ran about shipping, um, we didn't have a very significant variance in conversion between, uh, I think it was a 995 shipping versus a 795 shipping. So giving discounts on shipping right now is not as relevant as before, which to me just blows my mind because what you think in shipping, you consider Amazon, right? Customers are getting spoiled with Amazon. Yep. Spoiled. I'm spoiled. Because exactly, you just go on Amazon. I literally went on Amazon last week on Friday to get some vitamins and I got the vitamins on Saturday morning. So I got like, a leaf blower in one day. Wow. That's a whole different level of being spoiled. But I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. Exactly. And that talks closely to how expensive their distribution network is, how many warehouses they have and how much inventory they hold in each of the warehouses to be able to do that. Because as you centralize, it's easier for you to keep control of what you're doing and keep your processes consistent and whatnot. And that's what we do. But as you want to reduce the time in transit, you have to do that. And then you need more, more labor, more headcount to make sure that everything happens and more inventory. And there's more cash tied up into that inventory. And it just goes crazy. But most people that don't know what goes behind running a business just think, oh, well, this brand doesn't know, doesn't know what they're doing because Amazon is doing it in a day. Yep. So there's a lot of educating consumers about shipping and logistics for them to understand why Amazon is able to do this, whereas the small brand that you're trying to support cannot do that. that that's just impossible. It doesn't make sense on their unit economics. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the silver lining of 2020 is that a lot of people did experiment with new DDC companies. They went places they would have probably never shopped before then. And, you know, we're buying things directly from brands. So I think they probably became more, you know, accustomed to paying for shipping to where going forward, that might be a more normalized thing or going forward, people will just be like, you need to just include that in the cost. Because oftentimes I do think if you were just to increase the cost by a couple of dollars and tell me I have free shipping, I probably would be happier and just not care where it went. You can charge me for it, but just don't show me that extra line at checkout. Right, right. And that's exactly how we did that first test. We just did exactly the same total cost for the mm -hmm. customer, but one had the shipping um, as a separate line item and the other one had the shipping baked into it. And again, the free shipping converted way more, yeah. but now the last time we ran it, it didn't. So yeah, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen now? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a definitely a good test to run. So 
what's next? Like, what are you guys preparing for right now? Are you going to re-enter retail? Are you going to start working with like wholesalers or what are you guys planning for over the next like one to two years? That's a great question. It involves a little bit of forecasting in times of uncertainty mm-hmm. and in, to the best of our ability, we forecast that potentially until late this year or probably mid next year, we're going to be back to whatever normal is. Um, and so there's many other channels that will come back to normal aside from e-commerce, right? E-commerce is now our bread and butter and we're heavily focused there. Um, but we foresee some opportunities, um, for example, in grocery stores and wholesale that we might pursue as well. So that depends a lot on where the market is. And I think by now, we know exactly how to pivot and persevere whenever needed. Mm-hmm. We learned that lesson during the e-commerce and pandemic shift. Would you re-enter retail with, like, would you do anything different now where you've had a year plus to kind of think about it and you know, think through the strategies that you were using before, would you go about it a different way? Um, no, no, that's, that's definitely not in our intention for the future. I think retail can work in some ways, but th- that's not something we want to do anymore just because right now we have this brand awareness and we have this momentum that the brand generated with the e-commerce shift and everything that's going on around us that we just think limiting your product to one single store that depends on the foot traffic around that store is not where we want to be. Mm-hmm. So on the brick and mortar side, no, I don't think we would do anything different. On the e-commerce side, perhaps we would have started earlier. If <laughs> You can't have that kind of hindsight, but yes, I'm sure everyone's like, why didn't we do this a couple of years ago? Yeah, definitely. I mean, what about samples though? That's always my thing with everyone who's come on the show who is in, you know, like the CPG area and foods and snacks and all this stuff. I mean, I always think about Costco, which I love so much and I miss their samples a lot. (laughs) And I think about like, you know, a product like yours, especially with buying it online. It's like, well, I don't know how it'll taste and it'd be nice to be able to try it out in like a small, you know, amount first. And that's why I think retail is so great. So how do you guys think about introducing it, you know, to customers like me who would be maybe harder to sell to online without really knowing, you know, if I would even like it? Right. Well, I think you touch a very important point in the wholesale slash grocery store channel, which is they do their own experiential marketing. Some of them do. Mm-hmm. Some of them have fairs and um, other types of experiential marketing. And, and that's one thing that we'll definitely tap into. Organizing our own events is something we thought about, but not depending on real estate that's under a lease agreement, if that makes sense, right? Because an event, you're going to generate all that buzz and bring potential customers to your event. And maybe you can even do brand partnerships to uh, generate even more buzz. And those people will come and try your cookie dough or whatever product you're selling, and then potentially buy from you at the grocery store or the e-commerce side. Whereas if you have one space, you're going to have to conduct business as usual. You're going to have to hire staff and keep staff and and train staff, keep the lease. Uh, There's a lot of uh, difficulties that encompass operating a retail store. And I think for what you're saying, acquisition of customers, I think there's other ways to find that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think there's going to be so much pent up demand around people wanting to, like you said, get in into these experiences and experience brands, but in like a different, unique way, whether it's events where you try something out or meetups or whatever it may be. 
I do think a lot of people who are changing quickly with the times will kind of see it how you do around like, we don't need just one location. We can kind of tap into the Walmarts and the Whole Foods and then go to these events and just really have like, um, yeah, just not be so reliant on one channel or one retail location. Yeah. And I think that brings us to a very important point that's happening because of the pandemic, which is the decentralization of population density, Mm -hmm. right? If you look at population density of San Francisco, LA, New York, Chicago, all the big cities in the US, there's many people that just left. Got out of there. I was one of them. (laughs) Peace. (laughs) Bye, California. So so did we. Now, Now we're in Nevada and there's a lot of people that just don't need to be in a physical space. They just work remotely and there's no sense in keeping all the lease or whatever mortgage you have Uh, for nothing. So that creates a very interesting moment for the industry because there's a lot of other cities that otherwise would not have had so much foot traffic or population that now do, right? Las Vegas now has a a big boom. There's a lot of people moving to Las Vegas. And so initially you would have thought, well, I'm only going to launch events in New York, LA, SF, Chicago, Dallas, because these are the biggest cities, but now it makes sense for you to go a little scrappier and do smaller events in cities that were not that big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking that too, of exploring kind of like micro events that seems like it'll be a lot more logistically because to actually tap into that same, maybe, you know, amount of people that you would have before 2019 or before 2020, like you really have to do a different approach, which seems like a lot of new and different kind of work that many brands probably weren't and maybe still aren't prepared for. Totally agree. And I believe the brands that are the most prepared in the e-commerce world are the ones that are going to succeed in the experiential events side of things, because we're going to have to ship cold product and make sure that the consistency and quality is kept throughout the time and transit. And the companies that are doing the best in e-commerce are the ones that are going to succeed there. Mm-hmm. So when thinking about uh, experiences and kind of like focusing more on maybe like the longer tail instead of, like you said, the big cities, how do you think about leveraging influencers? Because to me, that could have a big impact too. If you have events going on and you get an influencer from, you know, some city in Alabama, probably will have way better results than pulling in a Kardashian. Like, how do you think about utilizing them over the next couple of years? Well, that's a great question. That's a great question. And definitely something I did not think about, but now. Now I got your wheel spinning. Yeah. Now you got the wheel spinning. I think, well, if we're starting the events in these smaller cities, I think the local influencer is going to have a better result, as you said, right? Instead of spending millions in a Kardashian, for example, we could spend way less than that, but distribute it across 20, 30 influencers in 20 or 30 different cities and bring more people to the event for sure. Um, I think for the acquisition side of things, that will help because people will try our product. But at the same time, we have to make sure that the people that come to the event don't come only because of the influencer and they have a very good experience there as well, provided by us, right? And so leading with the messaging and the 1% giving back, like we're, we're not here just for you to see this influencer and just for you to try this cookie dough. We're also here to foster raw conversation about mental health and addiction recovery. Yeah, that's that's cool. And it also maybe brings up a point of like having volunteer events and kind of like smaller micro activities like that to bring people in for the mission. And then you've got the cookie dough and you're kind of like making this well-rounded experience that people walk away with. And they're like, oh, that brand had a really cool thing that, you know, I wouldn't have known about 
unless they hosted it. Yeah, love it. That's a great idea. You're welcome, man. I'm just <laughs> I'm here for days. Note of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I am thinking now about like attribution piece too, which I think is going to be, you know, a big thing that brands have to think through over the next couple of years of like, how do you know if your efforts are paying off? The world's changing so quickly. If you're moving to these more like, you know, smaller locations to focus on, things are becoming more distributed. It seems like there's going to be a lot of work to do around like what's actually working and what's not. Yes. Yes. You Accurate. just find a situation there, right? Attribution in marketing is the hardest part because some marketing pieces are going to be for brand awareness. And, and how do you quantify that? It's, mm-hmm. it's super hard. So a good approach for that is to just put everything in the same bucket and say, okay, revenue this month versus spend in marketing this month and just have that metric follow you through time for you to see whatever change this month is doing okay or is not doing okay. So obviously it's a very simplified metric and there's way more refined metrics, I would say, for you to use in each and every channel. But that is a quick indicator of, okay, you're messing something up or, okay, well, something's going on that's doing well here. So as attribution goes harder, and and you mentioned it quite well when you said, when we start spending in these events and other stuff, how do you know that that person actually purchased from your website because of the event or because they saw an ad on Facebook or because they watched Kelsey on a podcast or me on a podcast? There's limited ways for you to find that. And so I think that's a good way for you to kind of gauge your results. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a tricky world going forward. Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have 30 seconds or less to answer. Are you ready? Is. I just saw <laughs> wow. your eyebrow go, dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. That's your game face, I guess. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Experience, customer experience. I think when you receive a box from a brand, you got to make sure if you're at a brand, you got to make sure that that box is the best you can do for that customer to have a great experience because the convenience factor is there. Yes. But if you tell them, or if you send them an experience that's underwhelming, you're not going to keep that customer. So mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing in e-commerce. What's your favorite thing you did to your unboxing experience that you're like, I'm real proud of that. Is that still under the 30 second limit or can I expand? This is a new one. Yeah, this is your next 30 second question. I just added on. Um, I think as of now, the the coolest thing that we do is to send a, a note card for each and every one of our customers talking about our mission and what to do with the product. And if there's anything that's wrong with the product, please contact us, you know? I think some brands don't take the care of telling their customers how to reach out to them Mm -hmm. in case anything goes wrong. And I mean, you are, let's consider I'm the customer now, right? I'm, I'm paying whatever I'm paying for a cookie dough to receive cookie dough in my house and something happens and I'm not happy with the product. I'm going to go after it. I'm going to go ask the brand, Hey, like I just paid this amount of money for cookie dough. I could have paid way less in the supermarket. Can you please make it better? And if you're not ready for that, then you're not going to succeed in e-commerce. You've got to be ready to make sure that the customers have the best experience. And so sending that card and making sure that they know what to do and how to reach out to us has been a a great victory for us. Yep. Yeah. I love that. I think gone are the days of like, there's our chat bot. You can talk to them, try and solve it through them. Like, nope, people are over that. That was something that maybe worked in like 
2019 for a little bit. And everyone was headed in that direction of like tech can solve everything and it can take out your whole customer service team and it can, you know, solve all your problems. But I think now people are like, they're looking for that experience and they're looking for the brand to actually solve their problems and help them. Totally agreed. All right. Next question. If you had a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Wow. You, you've got to tell me that these things are coming. Now the wheels Sorry, are spinning here. I can't. It's a lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> um, what an interesting question. If I had my podcast, I think it would be about hustling. There are so many people that do so much cool stuff and we never hear about it. You know, there's people that are intrapreneurs and they're kind of entrepreneurs inside their own organizations. They're still in their job, Mm -hmm. but they're doing very cool stuff within their companies. And there's a lot of glamour around just entrepreneurship and whatnot. And so the, the hustling side would be interesting for me to hear. Who would my first guest be? That's a great question. Does it have to be a person that's alive or can I just say something? Whoever you want. Okay. I would probably interview Steve Jobs. That sounds good. I would listen to that. Oh, cool. (laughs) I think he he must have had very cool stories about hustling. Mm -hmm. There is some controversial information about his managerial skills, but... I do believe he was a hustler and Apple is what Apple is because of, or very much because of what he's done to it. So it would be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. I think that'd be really cool. I mean, yeah, there are so many people within companies, you see new product launches, you see new features. And I think people just associate with just like, oh, that's the brand, that's Google, that's Facebook, that's whatever. But it's like, there's people inside there who maybe had that idea and actually brought it to fruition. And like, I want to hear from those people. That's a good one. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much PR around the people that are on top of the company, but little is said about the people who actually bring those ideas into life. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. All right. What's one thing you don't understand today that you wish you did? Oh, wow. Interesting question. Well, the wholesale world has a lot of question marks to me right now, just because we're not in it very deep, I would say. So I would love to learn more about the wholesale and direct um, grocery store channel. I would probably know a lot more in a year. We can redo this and my, my answer will be. <laughs> we'll do a round one. two. Yeah. You guys start exploring wholesale and you come back with that. All yeah. right. And then the last question, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Wow. We go deep here, you know? Yeah, I love it. When I was doing this backpacking trip in 2015, I was, I think I was in Vancouver, Canada. And I had just missed my flight going to Toronto. And it was the first flight I'd ever missed in my life. And I was very upset, very upset. Mm -hmm. So I just went into this Starbucks shop and I was like, okay, I'm going to have this coffee and I'm going to just de-stress. I don't want to think about this. And I was alone. And there was this gentleman sitting on a table right next to me. And we ended up striking up a conversation and I was... A little stressed because of the flight, but still like, whatever, I'm, I just, I'm just here to make friends and see what it's like to live here. And then this guy, I just told him like everything about my life, but I led with what I was doing in Brazil, right? I was like, well, I'm a civil engineer from Brazil, yada, yada. And then in the middle of the conversation, he's like, oh, so who are you, Israel? And I'm like, what's going on here? I, I think this guy is, is a little odd. He didn't hear what I said. 
Um, and then I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to say it again. And then I started saying, well, I'm a civil engineer from Brazil, yada, yada. And then he stopped me in the middle. And then he said, you are not defined by your job. You are defined by your passion. What's your passion? And then it made me think like, oh my God, I describe myself by my job today. And I'm literally here trying to find a new city for me to live in. And I'm trying to lead with my job. So I think that was really kind of him to do. And it was a, an interesting thing. I don't know that he thought it was going to be so impactful for me. By the way, if you're listening to this, I don't remember your name, but it, you were really cool, dude. <laughs> you're um, the best. Yeah. Um, so as I went through my backpacking trip, I just kept that question in my mind over and over again. I was like, I got to find my passion. W what is the passion that I'm trying to solve here or trying to pursue in moving to the United States? And that eventually got me into a very deep reflection. Civil engineering was not my passion. Basically, that's the bottom line of that reflection. My passion is education. I want to do something around education. I think education is the key to change the world. And one of the things I want to do whenever I do have some more time, right, right now I don't. Um, but one of the things I want to do is to fund or found a nonprofit in Brazil to help with education in underserved areas. I think that's the key to go. And I'm so grateful uh, for the education that I had in Brazil, all in all, because that's why I'm here, right? If I had not had that education, then I wouldn't be here. So that's it. That. So long-winded response, but that was it. That's a good one. I think that is awesome of that person to give that, you know, those thoughts. And I've had that same kind of reflection when I was in the living in the East coast, like people were very much into like, what do you do? What's your degree? You know, like always starting right. off with that. And then when I moved to California, it was very much not that. And then moving to Austin now, it's like, what do you like to do? Like, do you like to hike? Do you like to paddleboard? And like yeah. such a different conversation, but it makes you think very differently about around like, what do I like to do? Who am I? So I love that. That took a turn for the philosophical and I am all about it. So love it. Is, thanks so much for joining the show. If people want to try out some dope, where can I get it from? I'm going to keep saying it like that. Dope. www.dope.com and it's D-O-U-G-H-P.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Most of our handles are at dope. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a blast. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.